Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Joel, and I'm here with journalist and author Malcolm Knox to talk about his new book, Truth is Trouble. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Joel. This is such an interesting book, and it's come at such a weirdly pivotal time. We're recording on the eve of the US election, and although the book isn't explicitly about American politics, it it seems to be a topic that is very, very uh, relevant to the US election, and as well as ours. Was that something you intentionally were were, aiming for? (laughs) Well, not intentionally, but, um, you know, the the way these things often happen, um, I I read the other day a a very good um, analysis by uh, an American um, uh, cultural um, historian who said when you're thinking about Donald Trump, you, you shouldn't necessarily take it as people voting for a person or approving of that person or supporting that person. What, what millions of Americans are doing is uh, voting as a way of making a cultural statement and they're aligning themselves with certain values and probably more potently aligning themselves against uh, certain other values. And their way of expressing that alignment um, is, is through their vote. And to me, that makes a lot of sense of the election, and it also um, uh, uh, probably brings the, the the subject matter of this book into the same kind of um, uh, atmospherics, cultural atmospherics, because the the um, alignments, as mixed up as they were and are, on uh, religious freedom, freedom of speech um, in Australia, and specifically on on Israel Folau, were very much um, statements of of cultural identity, and and people just saying, "Here's here's a way of um, expressing what I'm against, uh, and you know, to some degree, what I'm for." And it didn't really matter what the you know, the person, the lightning rod, uh, in, in this case, Israel Folau, didn't really matter what, what they had done and who they were and, and what they might stand for. It was, a, 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 for, for many people, it was a, an act of, uh, you know, pinning, pinning your colours to the mast. Mm. So did you set out to, I mean, the Is, Israel Folau issue was so, um, it's a great framing device for this book because, of, because he, he sort of splits... Um, the tribes of Australian politics um, right through the middle in some cases in ways that I, I think um, are really interesting to explore. So was was he the lightning rod that caused you to write the book or were you interested in free speech and were looking for it? Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think the latter um, more than the former. <laughs> um, and also because the Falau um, episode itself, as, as hot and, you know, feverish it was, um, it disappeared quite quickly. Uh, you know, he um, obtained his settlement from Rugby Australia after his sacking um, at the end of uh, last year, 2019. And um, essentially the, the, the Falao story itself ended there. But the, you know, the, 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 he was the, the pebble dropped into the pond and, you know, the ripples just kept on going. And, and not only... Um, through the religious freedom uh, bills that that went into parliament, um, uh, but um, stuff that we've seen during um, the the year of the pandemic um, has kind of plugged 
back into the, the Falau story in many ways. So, yeah, something that um, the inciting incident, if you like, felt um, to me like something that would, would go away quite quickly. Um, it still seems to, to hang around. Mm. I, I'm curious as to whether you think that the tribalism that we're seeing and the culture war that we're seeing in Australia, which, you know, they've been talking about culture war in Australian politics for generations at this point, yeah. but it does feel particularly ripe at the moment. And that's not just because of Izzy Falau. It's also, <laughs> <laughs> it's also, it feels partially influenced by US politics, to be honest. And I, I wonder how much you believe that to be an influence on Australian politics in that regard. Like some people that I talk to seem to almost conflate the two. Like we are basically living under Trump, which we're not. Um, and it's very different here. But um, I, I wonder if you think that, that there's anything to that. Oh, I think the, um, you know, the, the, the best indicator, you know, I agree with you, and the best indicator of that is the degree of interest Australians are taking um, in the, the, the US election this time. It's as if it's the most important election for us, um, as well as for America in, in at least a generation. And you can't justify that statement uh, through um, measurable effects in terms of foreign policy and, you know, trade policy and things like that, where it feels important is in that cultural uh, ferment. And um, I think Australians, um, one way or another, um, if they could vote in the US election, would also be doing so as, you know, one way or the other, um, a statement of, of cultural um, tribalism. Mm. It's, it's really fascinating. So I, uh, I think um, in, at the beginning of the book, you sort of lay out the splits that were um, intersected by the um, Izzy Falau case, uh, which I found uh, sort of really easily summed up the, the, the problems here, which I thought were really interesting, which you uh, summarised, and correct me if I'm wrong here, as religious freedom, employer control of speech, uh, homophobia, colonialism and race, and class inequalities. D does that sort of yeah, uh, yeah. sum it up? Yeah, uh, and they cross-cut. And, and anybody who uh, thinks that they, they sit um, uh, with their tribe um, holding to the same positions under each of those subject headings um, would be, I think they'd be hard-pressed um, to, to find um, that kind of alignment. And, uh, you know, for instance, of, of the topics you raised, the, I think the standout one for me is um, how the, uh, you know, what, what you might have once called left or progressive um, uh, uh, people who opposed what Israel Folau had done on the basis of the offence um, he caused and the harm he, he, he could be doing, uh, you know, specifically to, to, um, to gay people, um, they found themselves in the same side as uh, the employer uh, who wanted to um, uh, impose total conformity on the employee um, and they also found themselves on the same side in some ways as the as the colonialists um, who had imposed um, 
Protestant religion on the islands in the Pacific from which uh, Israel Folau's um, family came. So it was possible when, when you pulled it apart to find yourself um, on very uncomfortably on both sides um, of the, the, the debate. And, you know, as we do, um, uh, especially at times like this, and I think it's been accentuated since the, since the pandemic, um, uh, the, the, there's great comfort in belonging. We find, we find great comfort in belonging. And so we gravitate towards um, uh, a side in, in those debates that uh, gives us a feeling of solidarity and, and strength and warmth. And um, uh, that's, you know, perhaps the underlying theme of the book is my feelings, and, and I think feelings that are shared by a lot of people, feelings of unease uh, with this um, polarity, with the constant magnetism to one side or another, uh, and the demand to make a choice. And we've just been talking about the US election. Well, that's, a, that's an election. It's a very stark, uh, stark choice being offered, red or blue. Uh, you know, um, press, press your button. Um, but in, in these, what makes me very uncomfortable about a lot of these cultural um, so-called debates is the, the incessant magnetism towards um, picking a side uh, and towards, um, uh, you know, a camp uh, that, that you have to uh, be in to, uh, you know, to take out your, your aggressions or whatever against the, the opposing camp. Um, and, you know, while there, there are many issues where, you know, it's important to have a strong opinion, if you put those issues together as a, as a collection, as a story like Falau does, um, to, to me, the, the thinking person can't find a comfortable place. So they can find a comfortable place on part of the debate and one of the issues, but then they find themselves over there in another part. And, and that suspension is really what we, what we have to deal with. Um, not, and, 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 you know, it's a kind of a call to, to resist the easy, um, the easy tribalism that, that is offered by um, those who like to simplify. Yeah, I definitely think you've communicated that in the book. I, I, def, I felt like on some of these issues, at least not all, that I thought I knew what side I was on. And then as I started reading, it made me really uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Which I imagine is your, your purpose. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's funny to have a strong opinion about the, um, the right to not have a strong opinion. Um, mm. and, and, you know, I've always been, I, I think, a, a person who resists the pull of, of tribes and of belonging and, and, you know, value, values, um, independence. And that is in the cultural ferment that we're living in. It, it is harder and harder because there are fewer incentives uh, to remain um, neutral and to remain kind of, if not unaligned, um, with your alignments mixed up and ambiguous. Yeah, I think that's the important way to, to, to put it, is that it's not that you don't have opinions about things on bo in both directions, but that you can't commit yourself to one side um, fully, yeah. which I think is really interesting. I, I wondered, you, you described yourself at one point in the book, which I think is sort of 
important to state in this interview because we are both, uh, you know, white men. <laughs> you describe yourself as a Switzerland of white privilege, I think, at one point. Yeah. Uh, and I wondered if you thought in some ways not having skin in the game in this debate allows you to sort of float in the centre of these of these questions because you because you don't you're not necessarily being angrily pulled by any personal connection to the to the argument yeah it's it's a really good question and the 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 devil's advocate in me says well does that mean that very fundamentally um i am indifferent you know and lacking empathy because i'm neutral on on neutral meaning uh, the way the way you just described it which is you know I, i'm not I'm, I'm not a person of color um i'm not um you know i'm a cisgender white male i'm kind of in that in that what we would use to have thought of as as a default default um neutrality um you know, I, I ask myself the question is, uh, I, I ask myself the question, am I detached because of some deficit of mine? You know, because, um, and, and if, I, if I had more empathy, um, would I actually be angrier and out on the streets and, you know, kind of marching against um, the likes of Falao? I don't know the answer to, to that. And um, maybe there, there is no answer. Um, but I, I, I do feel, at least in, in some ways, a representative of, uh, of those people who, um, uh, you know, who, who want to resist um, uh, belonging because in, in many ways we don't belong. I, you know, I don't belong in the, the you know, the, the militant groups along any of these, um, these dividing lines. Uh, and I'm not saying that's good. Uh, I'm not saying it's bad. Um, I'm just saying that that is my position. Mm. One, one aspect of the book which is personal that I found really fascinating to read about, and um, I, you may not feel comfortable talking about it, but certainly in the book you talk about being um, sandwiched between your father and your son mm. in, in, in um, religiosity. Uh, mm. Your son has become uh, an evangelical is, I, I, Anglican, I guess, yeah. Um, which is the church that I grew up in and uh, my parents left when I was about in my early teens. Uh, so I, that felt very personal to me and I, obviously much more personal to you. So I'm really curious to see how that part of it has affected your ability to empathise with that side because you're quite critical of evangelical Christianity in the book. Yeah. Um, but, but it must have been difficult to do that in some ways. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's probably more difficult for, for my son, who's now 18, um, than it is for me. Uh, uh, you know, our, our family relations are, I wouldn't say they're difficult, but, you know, there's a, there, there is a line of division where I am an atheist. Um, my, my son is a, a, is a believing um, Christian, and um, it, it, in some ways that's, that's his um, mode of rebellion. Uh, but um, again, I have to respect the genuineness with which he's doing it. Um, it, it it's, it's his identity that um, that he's carving out, and in, in some ways, I, I felt when I looked into 
the history of evangelicalism in Australia, this was a kind of a, a microcosm of the, of the big story, which, which is that the evangelicals were incredibly strong and influential in, in the first hundred years of settlement. Um, and they, uh, th their influence gave way to the kind of church that I grew up in, which was your sort of mild, mild, pleasant Protestantism that was very aligned with institutions of power and conservatism. Um, and now, as general religious belief has fallen away, um, the specific belief in, in the evangelical uh, and membership of evangelical churches and movements has grown, and it's certainly grown hugely as a proportion of remaining Christians. So what, what I grew up thinking of as the normal position of the church, the Christian church in Australia, um, might in fact have just been an exception for a period in, in the 20th century where that kind of, you know, mild and moderate um, uh, church held held its position um, alongside the institutions and and people like my my son um, represent uh, a future which is also a return to to the roots of Australian religion which going back to your earlier question takes us much more in, in a direction that resembles um, uh, what's taking place in America yeah absolutely um, it's a Interesting, you describe um, at one point in the book, you talk about the idea that everyone thinks of themselves as being in the sensible center, which uh, I think seems to somewhat inform uh, Scott Morrison's insistence on talking about quiet Australians yeah. who, um, to my mind, uh, don't seem to be that quiet. <laughs> um, and and also sort of like it balances off this idea that everyone is thinking that they're in the sensible center um, and and whilst actually expressing in some cases extreme what some of us consider extreme views do you how do you square that circle i guess yeah um, uh, well i think that there's a game there's a game being played and, and it's constantly being played um by uh, not only, you know, capital P political leaders, but small P political leaders, by which I mean church leaders and, and uh, you know, educational leaders of different kinds, which is a game of um, trying to redefine, always trying to redefine normality uh, and redefine the centre, uh, because that's where, you know, that's where the strength comes from. So everybody wants to define themselves as, uh, you know, common, common, sense and um th this is you, you know scott morrison uh taking some you know what what i find um quite uh, extreme ideas or bordering on extreme ideas and characterizing them as well these are the views of the quiet australians and and everybody thinks this whether you whether you agree with it or not um uh that's i think we're sophisticated enough um uh, people to know that a, a statement like we are the centre or this is the centre is, you know, assailed by so many subjectivities um, that it can't be read as a true statement. So even when I talk about being in the sensible centre, as we've talked um, about ourselves, I'm only I'm only speculating and making something up 
and and doing the uh, you know the, the human act of situating myself in a, in you know in between the extremes, um, but with with very few exceptions, those people who are on what I think of as the extremes, they identify as the centre. And um, even somebody like Israel Folau um, thought because of his reliance on, on biblical texts, which, which he would place at the centre of Western civilization, um, he would have seen himself as a centrist. And, and when he was saying uh, homosexual people must repent and come back to God or else they'll, they'll go to hell, um, and and citing the the Christian Bible as his source for that, I'm sure he thought, well, I I belong to the the centre, the sensible centre, and, and everybody thinks what I think, other than a few a few uh, fringe people um, who you know in out of the goodness of my heart, I'm trying to draw them back. Mm, that's so true. <laughs> it's it's very disturbing. Do do you? think in that sense then part of the purpose of this book is trying to redefine a sensible centre? Um, it, it probably has to be. I wouldn't say it's my purpose but it's probably the effect um, of what I'm doing and uh, if, if I had any purpose it's kind of to um, to try to express a lack of um, a lack of shame in uh, in not picking a site and, and not being drawn towards an extreme. And I've battled with this for, for a long time um, as a journalist because um, the, the, the very clear incentives for people like me writing for a mainstream um, organisation, um, you know, there, there are all sorts of incentives associated with taking an extreme position, shouting louder, finding something um, outrageous to say that will attract a lot of comments, will attract a lot of readership, will attract controversy. Um, and it, it, it's, you know, it, it always just seems like dumb, uh, perverse incentives to me. And um, uh, I, I've always tried to resist it. And if I'm redefining the centre as people people who just don't want to give in to the temptation to, to, to shout and to go to the extreme. Um, if that's what I'm doing, yes, that is the answer to your question. But it's more a byproduct of what I'm doing than my actual purpose. Mm. What would you say your purpose is? Um, <laughs> well, my purpose, I, I suppose, um, as, as naturally, um, you know, I see myself as a, as a novelist and a fiction writer more than a, more, certainly more than a polemicist or, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a, um, a non-fiction uh, writer. I suppose it's to, my purpose is to illustrate something, to, to illustrate a state of mind when confronted with the confusions of this particular issue, um, to, to illustrate how, how I responded to different things as it went on, uh, to analyse where those responses came from. And as a novelist does, um, attempt by drilling into the, the individual case um, and, and tell the, the, the singular story to try to find something more um, representative and, and universal in that. 
Mm. I, I find it just fascinating because I, I think in my own life, I have people, friends and family on what I would describe as fringe positions in both directions of politics. And I've been accused by some people in my own life of being sort of uh, centrist, which I probably wouldn't describe myself as, but I'm happy. Well, ha- ha- <laughs> well, and also it, it's almost a dirty word to be centrist. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's, it's also, it sounds anemic, like you don't really care. Yeah. Uh, so I think this uh, book sort of gives some sort of structure for someone who wants to make an argument in favour of centrism, yeah. yeah, for want of a better word, you know, um, for, or for not picking a side if you want to find a different way of putting it, so that you can actually be a passionate um, <laughs> uh, non-combatant <laughs> or something. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, that, that, that's a really great way of putting it, and I will steal that uh, from you when <laughs> other people ask me about it, because that's it, that's it exactly, and, and it's not as if I'm advocating that. It's more that I'm illustrating that, and perhaps by illustration uh, can, show, can show you a way. Mm. Um, one of the things you cover, well, that's sort of uh, woven throughout the whole book is is the um, the ca- cancel culture, basically, mm. um, which is such a complicated issue, I think, at the moment, uh, and and has you know rears its head the whole way through the pandemic as well. Um, how how <laughs> are you worried about this book coming back to bite you? In that oh, um, yeah, you know, nobody nobody likes, or well, at least I shouldn't say nobody, but I don't like being traumatised or or, or, or brutalised in public. And, um, uh, you know, I suppose if, if, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Um, it, it, it seems to me that, that, you know, cancel culture is just another way of saying um, to your children, you know, use your words. Uh, you don't. You don't need to scream. You don't. You don't get what you want necessarily just by screaming. We know what you think when you scream, uh, but it's not going to get you anywhere. And in fact, we we probably live in a culture where um, uh, people feel that the only way to make to get to get heard is to scream. Um, uh, like um, you know, like we're we're, we're socialised out of doing. Um, uh, and yeah, look, I, I I won't pretend I'm not a little bit a little bit fearful of that, and and you know carrying a few bruises uh, from the years, um, uh, but uh, you know obviously they I'm either too stupid to to give up and and live a quiet life, um, or I'm optimistic uh, that enough enough people will find something useful in this and, and relevant to them um, and that will cancel out the um, the effect of uh, those who you know just only know the mode of attack yeah I, I think it's it's just such a great uh, read and I think by staking out this ground you've you've, you've made something much more persuasive than an actual polemic <laughs> uh, and I I, I I would like to keep talking to you about it, but I think we should we should uh, wrap up. But um, do you have any other um, optimistic notes to end our chat on <laughs> on this eve of uh, such well the, the way that people are talking about it as if making a yeah, decision no. about the end of the world? 
No, no, I don't have any, any other generally optimistic statements other than you've given me a lot of optimism because um, it, it was a difficult book to write and um, uh, difficult for, for many reasons, um, but it feels like it's got through to you in the way that I hoped it would get through to a reader. So that in itself gives me a lot of, a lot of hope. That's fantastic. Well, I highly recommend it to anyone. Uh, if you're interested in politics in any way, uh, or free speech, or um, cancel culture, or um, any of the issues that are, I think are animating politics in Australia and around the world. Uh, I think it's just um, going to make you think. Um, and even if it makes you angry, that's a good thing. <laughs> because it will make you angry in a different way to some other books that I, I have read this year. So uh, um, thanks so much for joining us, Malcolm. It's been great speaking to you. Thanks, Joel. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And you can buy Truth is Trouble from booktopia.com.au or your local independent bookshop, which we highly recommend. Thank you so much, Malcolm, and uh, talk to you soon, hopefully. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.